And please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, chapter 2. Verse 16 and 17, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Our subject this evening is dismissing religious shadows. So we continue uh, this evening in our studies through this letter to the Colossians. And uh, just to very briefly recap on what we considered last week, the Apostle Paul was speaking about the spiritual nature of salvation, the spiritual nature the inward nature of salvation. There must be a change within. And so the apostle referred to the circumcision made without hands in verse 11. And what could that mean? Well, that was an inward circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, which in fact was always preached right from the time of Moses. The outward sign of circumcision showed that you were an Israelite, that you shared in the covenant of Abraham, but the inward circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, showed that you were part of the covenant of grace and that you belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the circumcision that we need. And uh, then the apostle spoke of the new life that we have in Christ. He spoke of conversion in verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. We have an experience of Christ's death and resurrection by faith. When we believe in Christ's, Christ dying and uh, uh, raising again, well, we have that experience of uh, his death and resurrection in the fact that we too die and we are born again. The old person that we once were is gone, dead and buried, and we are renewed. We are born again. We are, as it were, risen from the dead. And it's all God's work. It is the operation of God by faith. And we also have our sin debt cancelled out, the blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. We read in verse 14, our sins are blotted out. How is that? By our works? No. By Christ, by his death on the cross, he has blotted out the condemnation of the law. The Mosaic law, the moral law, is not how we get to God. The law condemns us. It only exposes our sin. But Christ has paid the price for our sin. He was condemned in our place instead of us. And so that debt has been wiped out. It has been paid in full. The invoice, as it were, that which we owe to God has uh, been nailed to his cross. It's been taken out of the way. And this, of course, is glorious for us to consider. And then verse 15, well, uh, having spoiled principalities and powers, 
he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The victory of Christ over the forces of evil, those spiritual forces over Satan and his ranks of demons, uh, which will be fully seen on the very last day. But this is all spiritual, all of these things, not carnal. The false teachers were pointing to carnal things, doing physical things in order to gain approval with God, literal circumcision, and so on. But these are all spiritual. Christianity is essentially a spiritual work. It is by faith, and uh, this is how we are saved. And so this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making, and he will continue to make this point uh, in the next few verses, identifying along the way the various errors that were infiltrating the church. And uh, just before we look at the details of these verses, and we're going to attempt to get to the end of the chapter this evening, uh, just to say that the language used here in these uh, verses can be very confusing and complicated, but the principles themselves are very clear and the lessons are quite clear and even simple. So uh, we'll try not to get too bogged down in uh, the wording, but we'll uh, tease out all of the applications. So verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. So since we have been saved by faith in Christ, that spiritual work, since we know that, since we are complete in Christ, therefore let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day. In other words, let nobody say to you that you are not right with God because you do not keep the outward rites and uh, the ceremonies of the Old Testament. We are saved in Christ. So therefore let no man say otherwise and seek to add to Christ. In the Old Testament, the Jews placed great emphasis on the things that are mentioned here, meat, drink, holy days, and so on the uh, observance of holy days and festivals. They had all their feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, some uh, festivals and feasts were held at the beginning of the month, or the new moon, as it is put here, the Sabbath day as well, of course. Well, all of these things, so many of the Jews, the majority of the Jews thought that these things made them holy. What makes us holy and righteous before God? It's these things. It's the way we eat. It's the way we drink. It's our observance of the holy days and uh, all of these things. That's what they thought. And perhaps some would say, well, there was uh, justification in thinking that because after all, had not all these things, these laws, been given to them by God? Yes, they had. We read in the Old Testament, in the books uh, of the Old Testament, Leviticus in particular, that yes, so many of these laws and these ceremonies had been given to them by God himself, by God to Moses in the Old Testament, and Moses had given them to the Jews. But here's the thing, and this is what we are taught in the next verse. These things were only a shadow 
of things to come. A shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. So all those things that were given to them by God, yes, but they were not the things that saved. They were only pointing to the one who would come, Christ. He was the one who would save. They were just shadows. But the body is of Christ in the same way as when somebody approaches you. Very often it's the shadow that comes over you and then you see the body, then you see the person. Well, in that same way, this is what these things were. The meat, the drink, the holy days. The reason that the Israelite nation were given these dietary laws and various other laws uh, concerning the way that they conducted themselves, even their dress. Why were they given these things? Well, it was uh, to point to Christ. It was to point to uh, the way that the church would be in the gospel age. The Israelite nation, they were not a nation that made up their own laws. They were not a nation that decided by themselves what they would eat. They obeyed God. God showed them what to eat. God showed them how to live and they obeyed God. They were different from the rest of the world. And isn't that a shadow of the church, of us as the Lord's people? We in the gospel age, we who belong to Christ, we're exactly the same. We don't just do our own things. We don't just decide how we're going to act and conduct ourselves. We live according to God's word. And Israel as a nation, they were a shadow of the church, a foreshadowing of the church, teaching how the church would be. They didn't make their own decisions. And then, of course, we have the, uh, well, the holy days and so on. They pointed to Christ, the Passover, the feast of the Passover. Well, I hardly need to explain how that points to Christ, the Passover lamb. We know the narrative when the Israelites were captive in Egypt, the final plague, the, uh, the firstborn in every household would die unless the Israelites were told, unless they sacrificed a lamb and struck the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses with the blood. And uh, when God visited their household, the judgment would pass over them and they would be spared. And that points to Christ because we trust in Christ. The judgment of God will pass over us on the day of judgment. We trust in Christ and his shed blood. And so there is no punishment for us. There is no death for us. Christ is our Passover. So the actual Passover feast was just a shadow, a shadow of things to come. The same with the animal sacrifices, the same with the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was a day of rest. Well, Christ is our rest. Of course he is. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews would rest from their works. And we as Christian people, we rest from our works. Works will never save us. We know this, of course. All our good deeds will never save us. But we trust in Christ and we rest in him. We know that we are safe and secure. We have assurance of salvation in him. So all of those things, they were a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And by the way, all of these things, the meat, the drink, the holy days, the observance of all these things, they did not need faith. 
we walk by faith. And, uh, well, we've mentioned this quite recently in gospel messages, but we don't make substitutes for faith. And really, this is uh, what the uh, Judaizers in the church were suggesting. Substitutes for faith. Instead of faith in Christ, just follow these rites and these observances and you will be all right. But we must not do that. No substitutes for faith. Sometimes you meet people who clearly are using things as substitutes for faith, even the things of the New Testament. We have two ordinances in the New Testament. We don't have the dietary laws and so on. We have two ordinances. That's the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are the ordinances that we have. But even those can be abused from time to time. People will turn up for the Lord's Supper and they will use the Lord's Supper as a substitute for faith. They don't really have any true faith, but they come to the Lord's Supper as though that will get them salvation. There's some merit in uh, taking the Lord's Supper. And they use that as a substitute for faith. And baptism as well. I know many people, they don't really have any faith at all. But they will point to their baptism. But you see, I was baptized once when I was 10 or 11. So I don't really need faith actually at all because I was baptized. They think there's merit. That's what saves them. Their baptism. But of course, we don't believe in those things. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We uh, have those ordinances. Really, they are an affirmation of our faith. They represent our faith. But we must have faith first. And so uh, these principles are very important for us. And it was something that the Colossian church had to learn. Those Old Testament things that the Judaizers were pushing upon them, there is no merit on the, in them. They are a shadow of things to come. But the body, the fulfillment, in other words, is of Christ. But then verse 18 let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels. And uh, here is where the language starts to get quite uh, difficult to understand. But uh, again, the apostle is saying, let no man beguile you. He's uh, said, let no man therefore judge you in verse 16. But verse 18, let no man beguile you or judge against you, or disqualify you. It's actually a sporting word in the Greek. Let no man disqualify you of your reward, the reward that we have in Christ, in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels. Now, I've mentioned many times that not only were there Judaizers seeking to lead the church astray, but there seemed to be some sort of strange paganistic angel worship that was being promoted in the church. Why were angels being worshipped and in some cases prayed to? Why was this happening? Well, we are told here it's because of a kind of voluntary humility. What does that mean? It really means here a mock humility or a foolish humility or a fake humility. You see, what these people were doing... They were making out they were so humble, so full of humility. And they were saying, we can't possibly approach God directly. 
We can't do that. We're so humble. We're so unworthy. We can't approach God directly. No, we have to pray to the angels. And through them, we will communicate with God. The angels have to be our mediators. We are too lowly to approach God by ourselves. So it was a mock humility, a foolish humility. Foolish, of course, because the New Testament teaching is that there is no other mediator other than Christ, the one who is God, of course, the God-man. He is the only mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, you know these words very well. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the mediator. He is our intercessor. So we don't need a prophet. We don't need a priest in order to... Uh, uh, intercede for us. We don't need an angel, of course not. We don't need Mary, as many Roman Catholics uh, make that error. Mary is our mediator. That's not what the Bible says. Christ is. We have full acceptance in him. He is the only mediator. And so uh, this is what was happening here. A voluntary humility, a foolish humility, a mock humility and worshipping of angels. And then we have those words, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Well, the essential sense of this is that this idea of worshipping angels because somebody feels too unworthy to appear before God himself well, that's not seen in Scripture. That very idea, I'm so unworthy, I can't come before God, I'll have to worship angels, that's not seen in Scripture. It wasn't taught by the apostles. It just came from his own fleshly mind. It has not been handed down. It's not of God. It's a product of their mind, this idea that we have angels as mediators. That's what the apostle is communicating here. These people have decided for themselves that this is what true religion ought to look like. And, uh, well, there's a, an implication here. It's very much implied that this is a proud thing to do. As if they are saying, well, we know better than the word of God. We know better than what the apostles taught. We're not going to listen to them. We're going to make up our own idea of what it is to be righteous and what it is to be humble. And we're going to worship angels. They are redefining religion. And that's a very proud thing to do, actually. That's not humble at all. They're being puffed up by his fleshly mind. They're making out as though they're humble. We're so humble we have to come through angels. But what they're actually doing is very proud. We're going to redefine religion. We're not going to refer to the word of God. We're not going to listen to the apostles. We're going to decide what our religion looks like and what humility looks like. That's actually very proud. I'm going to redefine religion and do what I want. So it was actually a contradiction. And uh, this again is something we have to be mindful of. This mock humility. Sometimes you meet people who are like this, not very often. But uh, sometimes you meet people, even professing Christians, who make out they're, uh, they're very humble and make a point of doing very humble things. 
but actually they're proud in that they don't submit themselves to the teaching of the word of God or the application of the word of God. They uh, don't humble themselves before the word. No, they make up their own idea of what true religion looks like. They make up their own uh, uh, definition of it. And that's very proud. True humility is humbling ourselves before the word of God and humbling ourselves before the principles of the word of God and applying it to ourselves, not making up our own idea of what being humble is or our own idea of what religion is. But these people, well, they were making out, they were humble, but they were actually doing their own thing and following their own ideas that came from their fleshly minds. And then verse 19, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Well, again, this sounds very complicated, but we can identify who the head is. Of course, the head is always the Lord Jesus Christ. And the body that is mentioned here in the verse is the church. And what this verse is teaching essentially is that the church must cleave to Christ. Again, in contrast to those who simply make up their religion, we cleave instead to Christ, the head. And when we do that, well, the church, the body is nourished and it is knit together and it increaseth, it grows with the increase of God. This is uh, the teaching here. We must have Christ. And these words are very uh, uh, similar to the words that we read in Ephesians 4. And I just turned to it. You can turn uh, to it if you want to. Uh, Ephesians 4 and verses 14 to 16. Ephesians 4 and verse 14. And again, this is a passage from the Apostle Paul speaking of uh, being aware of errors in every wind of doctrine. Verse 14 of chapter 4, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, again deceitfulness, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. These are false teachers but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. It's the same language being used here in verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Well, uh, again, the wording is, is quite uh, complicated, but it's the same idea. The head is Christ, and when we cleave to the head rather than turning to false teachers, then the church is built up, then the church is edified, then the church is blessed and nourished. And so uh, this is something that we've already touched on. We don't replace Christ or the Word of God with any other philosophy any other ideology, any worldly idea, any morality borrowed from the world, we hold, we cleaved, we cleave to Christ, the head, 
from which all the body increases and grows. It's the only way that the church will grow. But then verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Well, the rudiments of the world, remember that rudiment means uh, uh, just the basic elements of religion, the Mosaic law, the shadows of Christ, just the beginnings. And uh, the apostle is saying, you are free, you have moved on from the rudiments of religion because you know Christ, you have been converted, you are dead with Christ, you have uh, risen again. So uh, why are you still living as though uh, you have not Christ, as though Christ never came, as though we are still in the rudimentary phase of religion and we're still living under the Mosaic law? Christ has come, Christ has died, you know him, you love him. Why are you still living as though he never came, as though we're still under the rudiments why are you still subject to the Old Testament ordinances? And then verse 21, the Apostle Paul, well, he's mimicking the uh, or imitating the exhortations of the Judaizers. Taste not, touch not, rather, taste not, handle not. This was what the Judaizers were saying. So many things that they could not touch or taste or handle and remember that uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had added to the Mosaic law. So they had all the rites and ceremonies of the Mosaic law, but then they had added to those uh, uh, rules and regulations with their own rules and regulations, because uh, that's how they thought they would protect the Mosaic law or apply the Mosaic law. So these things, this is why the Apostle in verse 22 speaks about the commandments and doctrines of men. So many additional laws had been added. But those things did not have the power of God in them. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 22 that they were all to perish with the using. And uh, this, uh, well, it can be quite tricky to understand, but this is perhaps the Apostle Paul speaking of how the Jews put so much importance in uh, their ceremonies, particularly in uh, their diet, what they were to eat uh, in order to make them acceptable with God. But there was no power in those things. They were very much mistaken. The Lord Jesus Christ, and we read this in Matthew 15, and uh, verse 17, if we just turn to it very briefly. Matthew 15. And uh, verse 17. The Lord Jesus Christ, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught. Well, this passage, as uh, we read earlier, is uh, again speaking about all the uh, uh, traditions that the Jews had uh, created. 
And uh, in verse 9, for example, of Matthew 15, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men and the various washings that they had to do and uh, the things that they ate. But verse 17, Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught? There's no great power in the things that you eat and the things that you drink. That's not how you attain to the kingdom of God. These things die with the consumption of them. They perish in the eating of them. Whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught. You can uh, eat all the clean things that you want, but ultimately they just go into the stomach and then out of the stomach, into the gutter, into the sewage, into the ditch. There's no power in them to save you. There's nothing spiritual in them. Do you not understand? Getting to the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about faith. It's about spiritual things. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, they are all to perish with the using. All of these things, they cannot give you any power any acceptance with God. We look to the Lord. We look to Christ. We have faith in him. It's spiritual life that we need. And so this is the question that is being posed to the Colossians and they ought to be able to answer because they know the Lord Jesus Christ and they have had that experience of him. But we come to the final verse, which is perhaps the hardest part of this passage, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Well, as well as the Judaizers and the angel worship, there also seems to have been uh, a kind of uh, a practice that was going on in the church, which meant that the body was very severely neglected. The body was being punished in order, again, to gain merit with God, in order to gain acceptance with God. This is known as asceticism, generally, but it really means severe neglect of the body. So various kinds of false teaching, the angel worship, the Judaizers, and then there were others who were, well, they were neglecting the body, punishing the body. And uh, those people who were doing these things, well, they looked very good. There was a show, a show of wisdom. When uh, people would observe those who were neglecting the body and going without in order to obtain favor with God, well, it seemed as though they really were pious as though they really were holy. There's, there is a show. It looks good. And, uh, well, many people commended them for it. But the Apostle Paul is saying, no, it doesn't do any such thing. It doesn't do anything for your soul. It doesn't do anything for your acceptance with God. It's not even good for your body. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And uh, many interpret those words to mean that the body should not be treated in that way. Many people were denying themselves 
even the basics of life. And uh, the Apostle is saying that's not even right, not in any honour to the satisfying of the flesh. John Gill, in his commentary, puts it very well on this point. He writes, Since the body is the work of God's hands and is the habitation of the soul, it ought not to be neglected and dishonoured, but should have a sufficiency of food and clothing, whereby it may be comfortably and honourably nourished and supported. It's right to uh, nourish the body. It's right to support the body. What these people were doing was wrong. It didn't get them any approval from God, and it was even an offence to their own body. And even in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. That's the Apostle Paul again. But these people, they were hating their own flesh. And that was not to be. And uh, this way of doing things, this asceticism, again was the product of man's mind. This is not what God wants us to do. This is not what God has prescribed, that we all are totally neglect and beat our body down and punish our body. This is what man has decided that religion ought to be. This is what we uh, learn from that word or those two words, will worship. What does that mean, will worship? Well, it means according to the will of men, not true worship that God has shown to us. No, I'm going to do it according to my will. I'm going to uh, be so religious that, uh, well, it will show everybody else up and I'm going to uh, forbid myself even those things that God has not forbidden. I'm going to forbid myself those things because I want to be really religious and I want to be really pious. It was worship, it was religion according to their own will, not the will of God. Will worship. And this false humility, it looked humble, it made a show of these things, but it did not achieve anything at all. And uh, well, when I read those words, the most obvious example that came to my mind was Martin Luther, that great reformer. You know that he was a monk, a Roman Catholic monk, and uh, for many years, well, he was like this. Like what we read in verse 23, he neglected his body, he tortured himself. He uh, fasted so often, he neglected his body, he exposed his body to freezing temperatures. He would uh, lie in the snow at the height of winter all throughout the night because that was the way he thought, his will worship. This is the way to get right with God. If I do this, God will never neglect me. He will not abandon me. He will not reject me. It's not what God has said in his word, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to punish my body. But it was only when he actually turned to the word of God. What does God actually say about salvation? He read Romans 1 verse 17. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And then he found true faith. Then he found true peace and true joy, not through the neglecting of his body or any work that he could do. He found that great joy and peace in believing 
he realized that Christ was the fulfillment of all that was spoken of in the Old Testament, that Christ was his Passover lamb, that Christ was his Sabbath, his rest. He can rest from all his works because he has found Christ. And that's true religion, not religion according to our own mind and to our own definition. We hold to the word of God. We hold to the head. And it is from the word of God, from Christ and Christ alone, that we shall be blessed and edified and we shall be saved. Salvation is in Christ alone. We are complete in him. So these are the lessons that we learn from the end of this chapter. Hopefully it has made some kind of sense, even though the wording is very difficult. But may the Lord bless these things to us.